This month, Premier Christianity pays special tribute to the Queen. We look into how Christian faith has influenced her reign, her enduring friendship with Billy Graham, how Christian leaders are paying tribute, and ask, will King Charles III continue her work and defend the faith? Plus photos of Her Majesty and much more, all in Premier Christianity magazine. Order the commemorative issue for free at premierchristianity.com. I think that prayer to me is like the heightened experience of all of the greatest invitations in scripture. It is the place of deepest intimacy with God. It's the place that you sort out the hardest things that you walk through with God. And it's the place that I have experienced God's power most profoundly. And yet my experience in walking with so many other followers of Jesus is that most people don't like prayer very much. And most people tend to trust productivity more than prayer. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded daily to our website, premierchristianity.com. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options available. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. On today's show, I'm speaking to Tyler Staten, Director of 24-7 Prayer in the USA and Lead Pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon which he took over last year from founder John Mark Homer, well known in many evangelical circles for his book The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Staten is no less impressive when it comes to writing, having just released his second book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, an invitation to the wonder and mystery of prayer. Leading a church in one of the most secular cities in the USA, Staten is no naive optimist when it comes to prayer but his passion for talking to Jesus is firmly rooted in his belief that it is simultaneously the most joyful and productive way that a human being can spend their time. In this episode of The Profile, he tells me how his youth leader's challenge to prayer walk his school every single morning of his summer holidays led to a third of his year giving their lives to Christ, and why he believes this generation are hungrier than ever for a true experience of the living God. You're listening to The Profile. Tyler, can we start by you just telling us a little bit about your own story? Did you grow up in a Christian family? How did you first find faith? Yeah, you know, I I did grow up in a Christian family. My father came to faith shortly before I was born, about a year before I was born. and And he had... I guess a, a a dramatic, undramatic conversion experience. He 
it was quite dramatic for him and, and quite a turn in lifestyle for him. But my mom and that whole side of my family has been following Jesus for generations. So I, on one side of my family, I have this kind of lineage of faith. And on the other side, I have a dad who came to faith. And then I got to see remarkable shifts in his life, particularly, uh, you know, in, in the years of what we would call elementary school here in the States. I, I'm not sure what you call it on your side, but yeah, when I was 10 years old or so, and I can, re I can remember those. He got involved with a few men in the church that we were attending and took a trip to the nation of Kyrgyzstan in Southeast Asia and ended up having such a profound encounter with Jesus there serving among the people that he went back 10 times uh, as I was growing up. And it just utterly transformed his life, uh, all those experiences. So uh, I think that all of that widened my eyes to Jesus quite significantly. But also, I don't know why this is, but I was I, I was captivated by Jesus as, as a youngster, but I also was not an easy sell. I, I think I, I think I always knew this is kind of an insane story. Like if it's true, it's the best story. But we are talking about a first century Jewish peasant being crucified, and that somehow being not just not just mattering for me today, but mattering more for me than anything else has ever mattered. And even as a kid, I remember thinking, I remember wondering, like, is everyone tricking me into this? Or is this, is this real? You know, and my, my parents often joke with me even today about asking them like existential crisis level questions as they were putting me to bed when I was a kid. And then the, the real turning point, like what I would describe as my salvation experience is I had a youth pastor who said to me, just before we were breaking for summer, uh, when I was in the seventh grade, so I was 14 years old, and he said to me, Tyler, what do you think God would do in the lives of your friends at your school if you walked a circle around your school and prayed for them by name every day this summer? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, why don't you find that out? And that really intrigued me. Because it felt like an, a faith experiment. You know, it felt like not, not putting God to the test, but almost a, I don't know if I've ever given God a chance to surprise me or disappoint me. I think I've always just had this very safe experience with God. And so I was intrigued. And so my older brother uh, had just gotten his driver's license. So he, you know, was willing to drive anywhere and everywhere. And he drove me to my public middle school every day that summer. And I, I had a school directory, uh, which listed like everyone's name in my upcoming eighth grade class. And I carried it with me. And I just I walked a circle around the school and I prayed for everyone by name every day that summer. And something happened that summer that absolutely stunned me. I just fell in love with Jesus and with the presence of God. I, I discovered that God is not only in like the final night of a great church camp or uh, the, the moving closing moments of a particularly good sermon, but that God is in quiet when I'm alone 
and there is no one creating an experience for me that I can access him all the time. And I discovered that I really do believe this stuff more than I, more than I believe in God, that I enjoy his company. And I think he enjoys mine. And, and so I, I just fell in love with God. And I think I came to faith walking and talking with Jesus alone on the grounds of my public middle school. And then I came back from summer break and I met with the principal and I said, Hey, uh, I would like to start an extracurricular activity in the school, one about Jesus. Is that allowed? And he said, you can start any school club you want if you get a teacher sponsor. And so I found a a math teacher that was willing to sponsor that club and let me use her classroom. So we started a like Christian outreach ministry in my public middle school that met 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. And I was going to lead it. And my entire strategy for these meetings is I would flip to a random location in the Bible on Tuesday night, pick a paragraph with no context or understanding at all, read it, write down some notes about what I thought it probably meant, and then explain it to everyone the next morning. And the first meeting we did, there was two people, neither of whom I I knew. And by the end of that school year, it had moved into the school's theater. It was the largest extracurricular in the school. And I had seen a third of my eighth grade class come into relationship with Jesus through the potentially heretical sermons <laughs> that I was trying to preach uh, on those early mornings. Looking back, I can say for sure I did nothing right. I mean, it was a horrible time to meet. We were in a math classroom, like fluorescent lit. There was no atmosphere. There was no, there was no creativity or programming. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just continued to pray. Like I led that group on Wednesday mornings. And so I continued those prayer walks around my school on Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings. On Thursday mornings, I invited people to join me. And several people started joining me on those prayer walks. And I, I have no explanation for what happened in my life that year, except that God actually listens to our prayers and he actually responds. And so I came out of, of my eighth grade school year with a few realizations. Oh, my goodness. God is real. And not only is he real, I enjoy God. And not only do I enjoy God, but. I think the greatest, most adventurous, most fun kind of life is getting on board with what God is doing. And I think prior to that, I'd always associated, if I want to be serious about following Jesus, it means kind of forfeiting the fun and most interesting, most adventurous parts of life. It's like a trade, a noble trade. And what I discovered was it couldn't be more the opposite, that the most adventurous sort of life is the one of walking with Jesus and that God was so interested in my life that he actually wanted to use it for this incredible kingdom that he's building. And so what I can say for sure is what happened in me that year has never left me. I, a wonder came over me that year. And like, it was like life went from black and white to color. And it's never gone back to black and white. I have gone through ebbs and flows in my faith. I've gone through crisis moments. 
and I've gone through, you know, like peaks and valleys. So it's not like been up and to the right from there, but something happened within me that has never been turned off uh, that year. And so whenever I tell my faith story, it's strange, but beautiful to me that it all goes back to walking alone around a public American middle school. And I guess now, you know, it's obvious that experience really did impact you. You, you lead a prayer movement now in, in the States. You, you've just written a book about prayer. I'm guessing that from that experience, that was that was just it for you. You were absolutely sold that ordinary Christians, no matter your age, no matter your background, no matter, like you were saying, your Bible knowledge can can talk to God and, and God hears and he listens. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the reason I, I wanted to write a book on prayer, the reason I lead a prayer movement is I think that prayer to me is like the heightened experience of all of the greatest invitations in scripture. It is the place of deepest intimacy with God. It's the place that you sort out the hardest things that you walk through with God. And it's the place that I have experienced God's power most profoundly. And yet my experience in walking with so many other followers of Jesus is that most people don't like prayer very much. And most people tend to trust productivity more than prayer. Other church leaders, and and I struggle with this too, but we tend to really almost use prayer as a tag on to our best plans. And rather than prayer as the source where we derive our plans and the empowering agent that kind of puts wind in our sails if we're to go anywhere. And, and, and most just ordinary followers of Jesus that are working in different industries. And my, my experience is people treat prayer kind of like, like a shot of wheatgrass, which is like, I'm going to do this because I know it's good for me, but man, this is not going to taste good going down. And it's kind of like that, like prayers, or maybe prayers like going to the gym where it's like, I know this is good for me. I'm not particularly excited about it, but I guess I'll try to get into the habit because that's the right thing to do. I I think prayer should be like, maybe this word is too much, but maybe like the place of utter romance between us and God, where we feel closest to him, where we feel wrapped in his presence, where we discover more of his love, where we return to our most like naked and unashamed garden of Eden self, where we can just drop our masks, stop performing and simply talk to the one and and receive and hear from the one who knew us first and will know us always. I was really interested watching one of your promo videos for the new book in which you talked about how more people than ever are leaving the church. And yet there's this sense that actually more people than ever are spiritually hungry. And that one of the reasons mm-hmm. behind you wanting to to write the book was because you wanted to communicate that prayer is a spiritual experience. It is a way of us to enter into an experience which is real and strong and I was really interested by those comments I think my story is has a similarity with yours I became a Christian when I was 14 and my parents at that time weren't Christians my dad actually um, had just left my mum he was a weightlifter he'd become addicted to drugs our whole family fell apart and um, 
as I became a Christian and used to go take refuge in my youth leader's house, they challenged me in a similar way to your youth leader challenged you and said, can we pray for your parents? And honestly, as a 14 year old, also, I had no idea Mm. whether God was potentially even real at that point in my life, let alone whether I thought Mm. he would answer my prayer or fix my family. But he did over a period of years and a very long other story. But for me, also that experience of knowing that God not only heard my prayer, but and, and the prayer of my church family that, that really supported us at that time, but but listened and responded is the thing, I think, that, that you know, that, that has held my faith for the 25 years since. Um, I, I'm really interested that you were saying, you know, in the church, it's sometimes perceived as being really boring. But actually, if it's if it really is what Jesus said it was, it should be the most exciting thing that we can invite a, a broken and hurting world into. So what kind of things do you think we need to do as a church to get to that place where prayer is attractive, not only to us um, and where we give it a higher value, but also to people outside who perhaps don't know so much about it? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, let me start with the second bit and then move to the church. Yeah, I, I think when I look at culture today, it seems obvious to me that the, the world around us, is, while it's becoming significantly institutionally suspicious, is equally becoming more spiritually open. I've spent my entire adult life in New York City and now Portland, Oregon, which are two of the more European cities in America in terms of ideology, very, very unchristian, very unchurched, just, you know, tiny, tiny percentages of people open to church. And yet people will go to a yoga class and chant in an unknown language to unknown Eastern gods. People will try a new meditation app. People, People are open to mysticism and transcendence and Uh, spirituality in a way that previous generations just weren't. Previous generations operated more like, if you win my head, if you convince me, then you can have my heart. And that's why there was this heyday for apologists within the church and books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and The Case for Christ and things like this were like flying off the shelves and were the common rhetoric of the time. But today, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. I think probably maybe some with Gen X, it started to move. But with the millennial generation, all those that followed, it's the opposite side. It's like, win my heart and I'll give you my head. You know, if you can, if you can move me, if I can have a personal experience, that's what speaks at the deepest place to me. Because I think people today are kind of aware that if you hold all the information, you can convince me of almost anything. You know, we've watched enough Netflix documentaries to know, like, if you've got all the information and I have very little of the information, you can convince me. And yet I know there's a counter side to this that would be compelling, too, if I heard from that side. And so to me, prayer is the expression of the orthodox, historic Christian faith that speaks the language of the culture right now. That is, here, come and interact with the person of Jesus and the quietness of your own whispers and the, uh, the whispers of his spirit and give him a chance to make an appeal to you. And there's, sto- and, and there's story after story in the scriptures of God appealing to people in that way, you know, of God meeting people in dreams, of Jesus appearing embodied to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, of you know, this kind of thing. So I, I think 
the church has to figure out how to become a praying church again in order to reach the emerging generations that we're seeing uh, fill our towns and cities right now. Um, and then what does the church need to do just to reinvigorate a life of prayer within the, be the believing people? I think I would basically say, I don't know, I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> but, but maybe two, two threads that I think are important are, one is, I think we have to reclaim some of the ancient way that we've given up on. For instance, the church I lead, Bridgetown, and the 24-7 prayer movement that I'm a part of and help to lead, we are trying to reclaim the daily prayer rhythm that the early church lived by. So if you study church history, both you know the, the Hebrew people leading up to Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, the church in the book of Acts, the, the early church for the first 300 years lived by a morning, midday, and evening prayer rhythm. Meaning the, the early church literally gathered three times a day to pray together in these brief prayer meetings and then just return to their ordinary lives. The, and this was a world before clocks or iPhones or things like that. And so it was communion with Jesus that marked the passage of time for the early believers. This is why when you read the book of Acts, they're able to get the whole church together to pray in emergency situations in a world before email or phone phones or anything like that. It's because they were already gathering to pray so they could show up to their ordinary prayer meeting and find out Peter's in prison. Let's stay up all night and pray that God would miraculously re release him or whatever. Now it's impractical today to imagine that my church in Portland, that everyone would leave work and drive to the church in the middle of the day and pray and then get back. You know, everyone's lives are moving in a million different directions. But we can commune together at common times, praying common prayers in the spirit. And so we, through 24-7, developed an app called Inner Room to resource the church to do that. And so there's, there's things like that, like ancient practices that were historic to the early church. And then when, you know, so much of the church was diluted, when it, the church became the official religion of the Roman Empire, when Constantine kind of empowered the church. And, and there are things like that daily prayer rhythm that just never made, made its way back into the common church. It's been preserved in the monastic tradition, where every monastic tradition lives by set prayer hours, but never has it made its way back into the lives of common believers. And so I think, essentially, if prayer is like a swimming pool, the, the church has just stayed in the shallow end. And, and not swam deeper. And I think we have to reclaim some of the ancient way in order to swim into the deep end. And it doesn't even have to be the whole of the church. Like if 10% of the church I lead was swimming in the deep end, then without saying a word, it's just an invitation to everyone else. They're like, come on, the water is just fine over here. And maybe, maybe you, there will be a holy jealousy or a curiosity to swim deeper. So I think it's ancient, but I think it's creativity is important as well. You know, if you think about musical worship, for instance, the church has been so innovative and creative to continue to produce musical worship that speaks to the culture and is deeply historic and faithful, 
but speaks the same language that people are speaking today artistically and musically. And so much creativity and resources and money and things like that are being pumped into how we worship God through music. And then most churches are, are basically like setting up a few folding chairs in a circle and saying, here's the prayer meeting. And I just wonder what would happen if we if we got equally creative about prayer, if we dreamed of different ways of prayer, if, if we decided that prayer was as important as musical worship, which it is in the scriptures. And so I think creativity has to come alongside as well, where the artists and the creatives among our local communities are empowered to help us dream about interacting with God through silence and speaking through crying out, through lament, through, you know, all this catalog of prayer that we have in, in the biblical story. I would say I'm very much in the experimental phase on all of this. I have not cracked a code by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I mean, please let us know if you do, because um, I'm sure it's something that every church leader across the whole world would want to hear. But, you, yes, but you are, we'll you're do. right, aren't you? I mean, you know, you just think about the average church service, my church on a Sunday morning, you know, we'll spend 20, 30 minutes in, in musical song worship, 30 minutes of a preach, bits of prayer threaded in and out as people feel led. But um, if you just took it on ratios, you know, nothing like the same sort of intention about putting aside that same amount of time for prayer now lots of people would say that's quite difficult in a congregational setting on a Sunday morning if you might have young people there or children or visitors and all of those kinds of things but do you do you think we should be moving towards a position where we are we are doing that we're actually saying time wise we need to make sure our services contain the same elements as the early churches times together did uh no not necessarily you know I think the Sunday gathering is one expression of who we are as a church. I think there's forms of prayer that are really important for when the church is gathered. Like I think prophetic prayer for one another is quite powerful in those settings. And I think intercessory prayer for the common environments that we all inhabit throughout the other six days of the week is powerful in those settings and should be a part of our liturgy or our order of service when we gather. But I, I think I'm thinking more about the way that church life is ordered throughout the week. You know, musical worship is a form of prayer. And so I think we introduce people to a way of connection with God through musical worship, where we're being creative and thoughtful about the songs we sing, the lyrics that are written, the melodies that they're put to, uh, the way that we sing those songs, what we do with our bodies while we sing those songs. So there's a holistic experience that people are given in entering into musical worship. And so, so many people then love to worship and they feel connected with God as they worship. And that's because we are teaching them to pray through song uh, by employing all of those measures. And that is one form of prayer. And what I'm wondering is what if we devoted the same level of creativity toward other forms of prayer? Might we teach people other ways of connection with God that become equally like a well that they draw living water from and a place that they return to and find intimacy and feel deeply connected to God and feel wrapped in his love. What if we were equally creative about teaching people to journal their prayers or to silently sit before God or to 
read the Psalms until they hear their own voice uh, in some of the words and allow that to be a springboard to their prayers. And so one of the reasons I'm a part of the 24-7 prayer movement is my belief is that prayer rooms is, is one of the absolute best ways to do that because you can fill a space in your church with different stations and then allow people to pray in different ways. Um, and, and that kind of opens up this catalog of prayer. And it's almost like people have been painting on a canvas with one color and then they discover like, oh, there's a whole color palette here. Okay, well, let me try some of these. And then suddenly their, what, their experience of that painting becomes significantly more fun and creative and enlivened. So if that makes sense, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking about and getting at. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favor right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Now, obviously, your church is probably large compared to most UK churches and most of our listeners. But t- talk to me about what your prayer room looks like. How does it function? What what happens in it? Is it is there genuinely someone in it 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Well, I would say, first of all, the church that I lead now, Bridgetown, it, it is a large church, maybe on the UK scale, not on the American scale. It's not what you think of when you think of a large church in America because it's in such a post-Christian city. But the church, I planted and led a church in New York City for years that that grew to about 500 people on a Sunday by the time I left. But the, most of the time I was there, there was about 200 folks. So, you know, it was an, a massive church. And, and that was, we had a prayer room in that church. And I've never had a church that had a prayer room going 24 hours a day, seven days a week, year round. What we've always done is kind of sprints of uh, prayer room expression. So for instance, we'd say, all right, for the 40 days of Lent, we're going to do a prayer room and people will sign up for hours. And I've done it where it actually is around the clock. Like someone's coming at three in the morning to pray. And I have noticed, it seems like the best stories come at the weirdest hours. And I don't know if that's because people are like slightly hallucinating, but <laughs> I suspect it's just because God honors sacrifice and so when someone wakes up in the middle of the night to pray for an hour and then goes back, sleeps a little more, and then gets up and goes to work the next morning, God just is drawn to the sacrifice uh, that they're giving to meet with him. And then I've also done it where it's more where we've done like 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. or something. Uh, and it's just those hours. It's always kind of been, what do we have the bandwidth to do as a people? And what would a radical expression of prayer look like? for this community of people at this time. And within that prayer room, you know, I, I would say to try to paint a picture, it's a room that we've dedicated in our church and outside we'll always put some sign like take off your shoes before you enter. This is holy ground because we've set aside and consecrated a space as holy. So we kind of do a Moses thing and ask people to set their device outside and we've signed up for out for one hour time slots. And, you know, something I've thought about is my guess would be that in the churches I've led, something like 80% of the folks probably have never spent an hour in uninterrupted prayer, which I find 
terrifying, you know, just to think we have constructed a way of faith where you can follow Jesus your entire life in this construct and never actually spend an hour talking and listening to him one-on-one. That's something we've got to solve. So I think usually when the idea is first introduced to a community, there's anxiety in many of the people like, how on earth am I going to talk to God for an hour? I'll run out of things to talk about in the first, like within five minutes or something. And then people always emerge from the prayer room going, I can't believe that was an hour. That went so fast. I enjoyed that so much. And usually it's kind of hard to get people to sign up for the first week. And then people get mad that they can't get back in because so many people want to sign up in the, the weeks to follow because stories start rolling in and people start having experiences. But you walk inside the room and we always have it set up with different prayer stations, all for different expressions of prayer. So, for instance, we would have lots of space to write on the walls where people can can write their own prayers. We'd have a Bible open where people can read the Psalms and allow the Psalms to be a springboard to their prayers or read particular passages in the Gospels where they can imagine themselves and try to picture themselves in the story. And we'll just have little picture frames hanging next to each station, kind of giving instructions for, hey, while you're here, do this. And we also give people a booklet on their way in that walks them through the Lord's Prayer and just breaks it down. Here's how you spend an hour in prayer. So that way for the person that's just anxious and is like, I don't know, someone tell me what to do. We're doing that. And then for someone that's like, don't you ever tell me what to do. This is my experience. Then then that's fine too. So we'll have space to write on the walls and, and we'll make a mess. We fill the walls with prayer. And over the course of time, it will become the prayers of the people of our church, just in a collage across the walls. And some people draw uh, their prayer. And some people are journaling on the wall, but it's all anonymous. Uh, some people are writing the names of lost friends and family members they want to see come into the kingdom. And then we'll have another station where there's a cross and a water basin and a towel and instructions to pray and confess your sin and then wash your hands and feel the forgiveness of, of God on your hands. And another station with a map of our city or our country or of the world where people can pin locations for individuals or for, you know, right. Like we had basically a map of the world and you wouldn't believe the number of pins that were in Ukraine in the last few months, you know? And so that kind of thing where people can direct their prayers, but it's essentially, I could keep going like this, but it's essentially just saying, what are different ways we can pray? And then how can we create embodied experiences so that it's not just, okay, now talk to God about the crisis in Ukraine, but it's, it's giving people something to do with their hands and a way to express themselves creatively as they go about the act of prayer. And then prayer becomes this embodied experience that I think people can enter into more fully as their whole person. And then we use that prayer room in all sorts of different ways throughout the year. So we'll do a a sprint where people are in there hourly 24-7. And then we'll do, hey, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, our prayer room is open for these two one-hour slots. Everyone gather. One of our pastors is going to be in there leading prayer. And so we, we have a space set aside that never is used for anything but prayer. It's like a holy consecrated space in our church. But we're using it in different ways all throughout the year as we pray together. 
So when your youth leader challenged 14-year-old Tyler to go pray around his school, did you feel any sense of trepidation or I don't know how I'm going to talk to God about this? Or did you feel quite confident already at that age that you knew how to pray a walk and, and, and chat to God and ask himself? You know, I definitely didn't know how to prayer walk or talk to God, but I wasn't fearful. I think I was just naive. You know, I think I just was like, all right. I'll, and I, I, I think I didn't think about what I was going to do until I was there. And I remember the first time just kind of reading over the names as I was walking and then saying like, Jesus, if you love these people and you're listening to me, then please do something about it so that I know that you love them and are listening to me. And so they do too. And that was kind of it. And then I just walked to the circle and it, I don't know, it took 10 minutes or however long that took. But then as I did that, I think I found myself just talking to God more. I think I discovered maybe ways that I loved some of those names on that list. You know, Richard Foster says that intercessory prayer begins with it's it's here's when we pray for people it's when i love someone and i love them so much that their need exceeds my capacity to meet and that is what leads me to prayer and i love that definition of prayer because it means that god's power flows through love which is what i see in scripture it's first corinthians 13 most profoundly um and so i think you know, I discovered more and more the language for the way that I loved these people. And then I began to ask, I, I gained much more language for talking to God, I think, as I went, because maybe his heart was coming alive in my heart, looking back in hindsight. But no, I, I think I was just naive. And maybe that's why Jesus says that we're supposed to come to him like children you know, and to enter his kingdom is to become like a child again. And I think that's one thing that holds people back from prayer, honestly, is that we are so hyper aware of our experience as we're having it and that we're evaluating our own motives and our own experience as it's going. So it's literally as I'm praying the prayer, I'm evaluating, but why do I really want that? Am I only praying this because I want God to do something for me to make my life more comfortable? Am I only praying this because if this person, am am I praying for this person to come to faith because I love them selflessly and I want them to come to know Jesus? Or is it so that I'll feel like, well, if I'm a total nut job, at least I won't be totally alone in that. And, And I think the truth is that our motives get sorted out as we pray. We don't sort out our motives and then begin praying. And so I would say my counsel to people is always don't bite off more than you can chew. Just like give God an inch and then at a pace that is, is joyful and right for you, he will take a mile, you know, (laughs) you got to start just by giving him just an inch or maybe, I don't know, I should probably say a centimeter and a kilometer or something, but you know what I mean? We we do. We we work in, in yeah. both Imperial and Metric in the UK. It's okay. Yeah, interestingly, when I was prepping for this interview yesterday and I was reading um about the book and, and watching you speak about it and, and like we, we touched on earlier, your feeling that that people are spiritual and, and are wanting an a spiritual experience even when they don't know how to express that. And then I tucked my fourteen year old into bed last night and as as we were turning the light out, she said, Oh, Mum, Dad, we were in drama class today and my friends were apparently 
gently teasing her about being a Christian as they do sometimes. And then something came up in conversation and her friend suddenly said to her, um, decided at that point in time to to confide in her that sometimes she prayed. And, um, mm. and my, my 14 year old daughter said to her, um, that's really interesting. Do you, do you pray to God? Do you believe in God? And she said, I'm not sure but I do pray sometimes and I thought that's so interesting and you know having having been reading your book and, and reading all these thoughts it is it's true isn't it I think especially do you think that there's something you know post lockdown post pandemic you know tied up in in all these thoughts about you know we're living in an incredibly anxious time the war in Ukraine all these things going on surges in mental health problems in in our population but especially within our young people are people in a place where they are hungrier than ever before for God? And, and how can we in the church reach them with with the answer? How can, how can we introduce them to the power that is prayer that we know that, that maybe they don't? I, I don't know if the, if the culture is hungrier than ever before. What I know is that profound need produces a response in people to open themselves to God, or maybe to run further into themselves. And my anecdotal experience is that there's more openness to God than I can remember in a secular culture than I've experienced before. And again, I would say, but but that openness is primarily to experience I think my experience of setting up prayer rooms. So another thing we just, we, we set up a prayer room publicly. We rented a storefront on Broadway in New York city and opened a prayer room. And it was the most expensive thing that the church I led ever did. Like we spent all of our, we just went all in on like, let's give God a chance to write the kind of stories only he can write. And our inspiration was Mary of Bethany, you know, who broke open the alabaster jar over Jesus. And that was our, attempt is like, let's actually in, embody that pair or that story by, by doing something that's lavish and, and just to honor Jesus, to honor his presence. And what I found interesting is people were much more willing to go people, non-church going, non-believing people to go spend an hour in a Christian prayer room than they were to come to a church service and listen to a pastor like me talk about Jesus for 45 minutes. I suspect that the way that we introduce people that are, well, first of all, I think your daughter's experience with her friend is just the true experience across the world that, a ton of people that aren't really sure what they believe about God still pray. And if you read surveys from, you know, I think there was a survey from the most post-Christian part of the globe somewhere in Germany, where still uh, more than half the population said that they prayed at least once a week to God, despite not believing in God. And I, that, I think that that's just, there's something that God has written in the human heart where we call out to him. And we almost don't get to choose it. It's like an appetite that he's written into us because we are relational beings that are created for union with God. And so however far we run from that, there's something written into our DNA that won't allow us to just throw that appetite away altogether. And so I think as the church, we need to figure out 
how to begin praying again so that we can inherit the stories that that God can bring about that are beyond our power and creativity and best laid plans. I think we need to get more comfortable being the praying people of God outside the walls of the church. So another thing we do at Bridgetown is we have uh, identified 11 locations in our city of current or historic injustice, like areas of great need. And we have prayer meetings there on Tuesday mornings where we just pray the Lord's Prayer um, at various times all throughout the morning. And we've just called our whole church that. So, so around the city of Portland, there's circles of people standing around praying these ancient words together early in the morning. And two things are happening. One is that God is doing a significant work in our city because we believe in the power of prayer. But secondly, the people of our church are just getting used to being weird. And I think that's a good thing, you know, that just to get used to like, yeah, we don't have to close ourselves off behind a wall where it's like, no one, look, we're in here trying to talk to God. Don't let anyone actually see this. That would be so embarrassing. But, and, and the response of our city has been, you know, people, there's just been story after story of saying people have been so intrigued. They've come up. So what are you guys doing? Oh, wow. That's really cool. That's interesting. Whereas if I was to stand on a soapbox in the middle of the city and do the same thing, people wouldn't be like, what are you doing? Oh, how cool and interesting. People would be like, get out of here, man. And so I think we have to take prayer into the public place. And then lastly, hopefully create resources that invite people to talk to God. Because when people talk to God, he just responds to them. It's, it's the book of James. If you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. God is so eager for relationship with every person that if, if people just crack the door open, he tends to throw the thing all the way open quickly or slowly. But he is so eager to know us um, that I think if we can simply equip people, hey, start here. Many people have an experience like I did where they find, oh, you know, I actually really like talking to God and I might be a, I might be a nut, but in the quietness of my everyday moments, I'm going to continue to do this. And that is the beginning of a beautiful journey to intimacy with Jesus. And one more thing I just wanted to ask you about, um, I was watching your handover video um, with you and John Mark Homer. So you say the Bridgetown is, is not that big within the within the, the, the world of, of US churches, but it is, you know, still a fairly well-known church, probably because a lot of people have read John Mark Homer's books, know who he is. So fairly big shoes still, I guess, to step into. Um, mm-hmm. and, and watching you guys speak um, in the videos that you, you put online for your church when, when it was announced that you'd be taking over, you said that your great passion for the church is that it would be known for the people and not the pastor, which I thought was a, a super interesting comment, especially in today's culture where we, we seem to unfortunately have to deal with another leadership failure within the evangelical church every time we open our eyes and turn on the news. Does that comment come from that place? Or do you have concerns as a leader about the, the you know, the, the privilege, the, the pedestal that, that, that Christian leaders are sometimes put upon? I think that comment comes from my belief. Well, I, I would say first just about Bridgetown. Yeah, I think Bridgetown isn't like numerically gigantic. We're, we're a local church trying to follow Jesus. But what, what God has given to Bridgetown is a lot of influence with pastors and other leaders around the world. And that's been a real gift to inherit and to steward. 
and one that was cultivated by John Mark. But when, when I made that comment, I, I say that a lot. And what I mean is just that, that the early church or the biblical churches, they were known for the character of the people. Like we know from the scriptures all about the character of the people, know almost nothing about the people that led the churches after they were planted by Peter, John, or Paul. You know, that we know about Peter, John, and Paul, who all planted churches and then handed them off. And then we know almost nothing about who the pastor was, what sermons he was preaching, what books he was writing. What we know is the character of the people, the way that they loved their neighbors, the way they loved one another, the, the unique flavor and reputation that grew out of the local community. And this is what, what I see in the church today is that far too often we have designed the church in such a way where almost everyone else is magnifying and celebrating the spiritual gifts that God has given to one person. And I think, and it's almost like everyone likes that agreement, that silent agreement, like the, the leader who's being celebrated likes that for all the obvious reasons that one might, that might feed one's ego. Um, and the community likes that because it makes them feel that they're, what they're about is important. It's this great thing. And we are, we have seen again and again and again and again that ultimately that breaks the back of the person that's being elevated. And it leads to great disillusionment in the community elevating that person. What we know from scripture is that the church is alive when everyone's gifts are activated and everyone is empowered and equipped to play their role in a local body. And so my dream for the church is that the local body would be so alive, everyone's gifts would be activated, that one day that Bridgetown would be known for the people's character and not for John Mark Comer or Tyler Staten or anyone else. And, you know, John Mark and I, we both reflected independently, but then we discovered we both just reflected for the whole year that we were working on this transition on the same passage, which is the passage in who is Paul, who is Apollos, that passage, you know, and just thinking this is not a story about John Mark Comer handing off leadership to Tyler State. And it's a story about the people of Bridgetown Church. And the call of pastoral ministry is a call of suffering love. It is to imitate Christ's suffering love for his bride. So for a while, John Mark was called to suffer in love for the people of Portland who are a part of this community called Bridgetown. And then God called me to suffer in love on behalf of those people. But his passion is the people, the people that he's forming. And so if... If I start thinking the stories about me, or anyone else starts thinking the stories about me, then we are cooking up a recipe for disaster that will spoil the work. You know, it's, it's like the, when Jesus talks about yeast, it's at the end of the day, this is going, or, or wine skins, it's going to spill the wine and burst the skin. It's, it's like going to be a loss for everyone all the way around. And so I, I dream about a church that looks ancient in the way that she's known for the character of people. You've been listening to The Profile. 
in association with Premier Christianity magazine.